that's what makes me sad is that we could have so many things that we could be doing to prevent miscarriage, better genetic testing for women, you know, stem cell research, uh, maybe the use of CRISPR-Cas9. So these are all things that I think could help us, but I don't think I'm going to see them in my lifetime. Welcome to FemPower Health. Today marks the beginning of a three-part series delving deep into the intricate world of infertility, a topic that's always evolving. Case in point, the World Health Organization has recently updated the statistics. We've moved from one in eight couples to a significant one in six individuals wrestling with this challenge. Furthermore, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine has enriched our understanding of infertility with an updated, inclusive definition. This refreshed perspective underscores the complexities of the reproductive journey and the need for empathy and understanding. Amidst these paradigm shifts, the digital age presents its own set of challenges. Social media, through a boon in many ways, often casts a haze of myths, misconceptions, and occasionally unwarranted promises, particularly around infertility. So to help navigate this landscape, we are joined by Dr. Amy, the renowned egg whisperer. In this first installment, she will be debunking the myths and highlighting the facts of infertility treatments. In our upcoming episodes, we will tackle the tough decisions surrounding embryo donation and spotlight a pioneering company revolutionizing the adoption. And if you are interested in even more information around infertility, please check out the show notes for more resources. And now let's dive into the discussion. So Dr. Amy, thank you so much for joining me on the FemPower Health podcast. I know a mentor of mine works very closely with you and has spoken highly of you and I've actually um, been following you for a while, given my four-year fertility journey. I really wanted to have you on today to talk about the latest and greatest in the world of fertility. But before we dive in, I wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself for those who may not know the great work you're doing, and then we can dive in. Oh, thank you, Georgie, for giving me this opportunity to talk to you. I'm truly honored to be here. So basically, I'm a fertility doctor that's way too passionate um, about something, and that's making sure patients are fertility wise. So that's my new thing. Like I just say it over and over, please get your fertility wisdom before you start your treatment. Figure out what's going on. Diagnosis before treatment. That's been my mantra from day one, and I'm always trying to perfect how I communicate with people so more people can hear this message and really understand it and take that to their doctors. Um, here in San Francisco, you know, I'm at the same basically desk in the same office since 2008. I absolutely love what I'm doing. And the day I take a day off is the day that I'm in a grave and don't worry. I have no plans of doing that anytime soon, but that just shows you how extreme I am. And in terms of like how I, how I work and what I do. Um, and, uh, I, I also have a podcast I've, I've been uh, podcasting and I have, uh, IVF classes. I have a show called the Egg Whisperer Show. So even if a patient, someone out there listens and hears what I have to say, they don't have to come and see me as a patient. They can also learn from what my approach is in a number of different ways. So I hope that you know the things that I do can help someone out there, even if it's just one person a day, like I feel like mission is accomplished. Right. And it's so interesting to hear you saying this because it's still surprising to me that we are, I mean, obviously fertility is a whole different world, but I feel like just 
the knowledge we still need to have about our bodies. And then you add to it understanding fertility. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Like, are you finding that even with all the social media and whatnot, that we're still just finding these gaps and understanding our body and the world of fertility, obviously? Yeah. I mean, I think with social media, it's helping people feel less alone. Um, yeah. And so that's a huge win. I think younger people are getting the message that the older women are just like pissed that no one talked to them about their fertility. Yeah. And, you know, like no one should be surprised that at age 40, you're going into menopause and you can't get pregnant with your own eggs. You know, that's, that should not be surprising to anybody. And so I feel like all those 40 year olds are like screaming at the top of their lungs. So women now are actually freezing eggs at a younger age. So when I started egg freezing um, party back in 2014, I started throwing these parties all over the country and world. Um, what happened is the women would wait until their fertility levels were abnormal and then they would freeze their eggs. So they're basically freezing a lot of bad eggs, but you should really do it when you're younger. And so I think with social media, people like that message is out now, like freeze eggs when you're younger, you're better off. But the disservice that social media is doing for our patients is you know, you have these celebrities that aren't being honest about how they actually are getting pregnant and they're misleading people. So I still have these conversations with women in their late forties, like 47 to 49. And they're like, I'm amazing. I work out every day. I do hot yoga. And, and I'm like, and you still need an egg donor. And they just like, but I look so good. And I'm like, I, you know, that's amazing. Your ovaries just don't know how amazing you look. It's not like you can put Botox in your ovaries. There's just no such thing as that. And so I feel like we should, we, you know, it would be nice if people could be a little bit more honest about um, their pregnancy journey when they're at an age where the chances are truly zero. I mean, you're going to have like one out of 2 million that can do it between 45 right. and 50, but there's no amount of like, you know, attracting it to yourself and like believing in it, that's going to help. There's no amount of healthy eating that's going to make right. your 47 year old eggs 27. One day, I hope that there's going to be a shift and people are going to focus more energy and research into helping us have babies at a, at an, and I don't like to use the word older age because I'm 47 and I feel super young. I feel like I could totally have a baby right now and get pregnant, but my ovaries is a different story. I think people do promise these, these miracles. And I think there's just right. certain facts out there and I remember that journey, that 1% of hope. It's like, if someone said, stand on your head, I'd be like, all right, I've been at this four years. If that's what I need to do, I will do it. And so it's just this crazy, stressful ride. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because I know you're so passionate about the education piece and helping people truly understand what's out there. You know, not everyone has eggs that you know are healthy enough to turn into a healthy pregnancy. But I tell women, it's very realistic to to go through four or five, six cycles to even have a healthy embryo for some people. Like, I don't want people to feel like they're an alien or there's something abnormal about them. You right. know, that can sometimes be a normal human experience for people who are struggling to conceive. So, you know, that's how I would react to that is that, you know, take your story as a lesson that it can take some time to, to find that golden egg, so to speak. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, since you brought up egg freezing, I do want to talk about this because I know that there were a lot of companies that were really like, let everyone freeze your eggs. And it was right when the, I guess it was the ASRM had said, yes, you know, women who are not trying to, um, are going through cancer treatments, et cetera. Yes. Anyone can now freeze their eggs. So I would love to get your thoughts on 
what women should be aware of, because I find with the press and social media, everyone is like vying for followers and the, um, the shock, right? And I think it's important to talk about the facts, because I will say when the whole egg freezing spree started, I would go into listening to their seminars and I already had my son and I knew that I couldn't have any more kids. And I, I just went, I was like, I want to see what is happening. And it was very scary, the pressure. And, you know, I was, then I felt like I had to say everyone, but it doesn't guarantee a baby. So I felt like I was the one constantly giving that message. So what is the fair, balanced way to look at egg freezing? Yeah. So what I tell people is that the only thing that egg freezing ensures, there's only one thing and that ensures that you'll have another chance in the future at an older age that might be better than the chance that you have at that age. That's it. It's just a, another chance. And then the other thing I tell people is, you know, there's this concept that you can freeze your biological clock. And I hear that over and over, freeze your biological clock and freeze your eggs. I'm like, that's also a bunch of bullshit too, because you might be freezing your eggs, but what can still grow are fibroids, endometriosis, polyps, um, sperm could be bad. So I feel like people don't realize that the longer you wait, the higher the chance that you actually will not have a strong enough uterus to carry a pregnancy for yourself. So really, you know, become fertility wise when you start your egg freezing journey so that you're not waiting too long. And then if you're going to wait, you know, at an age where you can't go back and freeze more eggs. Let's say you're going to use your eggs at 46 when you froze at 36, you know, really be open to other ways of having a baby and, and think about those now, like don't wait till you're 46, thaw your eggs and find out none of them were healthy and then feel like disillusioned and angry that, you know, someone misled you, you know, you should have heard our conversation and then you say, Oh yeah, you know, I heard this and I knew that ahead of time that, you know, you can't have it all. You can't freeze your biological clock. It's not, you know, entirely possible for everybody. And freezing your eggs just gives me a better chance at 46. And what I don't want anyone to say is, and I wish I had frozen more eggs had I known that. So that's my other thing that I always tell people because I want to prevent regret is freeze more. So if you're going to delay childbearing to an age where you're in menopause or, you know, in perimenopause, which is, you know, for some people uh, over 35, for others, it's usually around 40, um, freeze more eggs while you still have them. And then also consider making embryos. So just to give you a chance to have a baby with your own DNA, if that's something that's important to you. So I have patients who will, let's say, do, you know, a couple cycles of eggs and then one cycle of embryos. And they truly you know, want it all. They want the dream wedding. They, you know, that's something that's really important to them. For me, wanting it all doesn't include the dream wedding. Um, but that's just, you know, for some people it does. And I totally respect that. Um, so, so, um, you know, I think, you know, those are the things that I've learned through my experiences with patients who've gone through egg freezing. And I hope that people who are listening to this can learn from that. And then if they, you know, follow this type of approach, then they won't be burned later on when they're ready to use their eggs. Right. Then let's talk about the nuances, right? Because I just, I remember that anxiety where, you know, looking back now, now that I've interviewed, you know, over a hundred experts on all these women's health topics, now that I have my child, um, now that I've hit menopause and there is absolutely no way that I can um, have a child using my own eggs, you know, it's so much easier to see 
these facts. But what about the coping? Because I know friends and others who've asked, well, how many cycles? How many cycles? And, you know, should I do this diet before that to optimize my eggs? And, you know, like it, it's such a panic because it, it feels like this is it and everything about it has to be perfect. And again, obviously everyone's mindsets are different, but in a lot of the conversations I've had, that can sometimes be where people are at. So I guess what would you advise either how to cope with that or tips of like, if you do X, it's not going to help all that much. Just do these foundations and it's, and it will be fine and just try your best to stay calm. Like how would you help someone balance that dynamic? Yeah, I think that what I tell patients, you really have no control over this. You know, your egg quality has to do with your age. You can't control that. Your genetics can't control it. The only thing you can really control is your environment. Um, And so the best way to control your environment is through all the lifestyle things that people already know, like hydrating well, eating a well-balanced diet. And I always say, don't avoid food groups. Like there's absolutely no reason to do that. When people start elimination diets, you know, I, there's no evidence that that helps at all. There's no study that shows removing gluten from your diet, avoiding dairy, avoiding sugar improves your egg quality. There just isn't. Um, but we know that well-balanced diets do. The Mediterranean diet, for example, um, sleeping well, getting really good quality sleep, reducing stress. I often focus on meditation and mantras with my patients and trying to find joy in each and every day and not allow this process of being a fertility patient rob you of your joy. And and basically, you know, I I don't like it to see people spiral. I don't like it to see people become obsessive or turn insane because it can certainly make someone who doesn't have OCD, give them OCD, make someone who's sane feel insane. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it has to do with some of the things that we see online that we feel shame for not doing. And then I tell people, please stop doing that. You know, and I worry about all the temping, the tracking, the daily hormone checking, the cervical checks, the urine checks, the Ava bracelet, the thermometers. And I'm just like, just stop it because none of that's going to make a difference. So just live your life, pee, flush the toilet and enjoy your days and realize that, you know, you're going to do your very best by, understanding what your numbers say, you know, meeting with a doctor that has the same priorities as you, and then just move forward with a nice plan. And at the end of the day, I want you to sleep well. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny looking back. I I wonder if my OBGYN didn't catch this, if I would have been, Mm -hmm. if I would have been more calm, I think it was the shock and I could never calm down about it because I, it just was this ride of like this constant, what the heck. So, um, I wish I'd come across you (laughs) back then. So what about, um, so here's a question that I often get is endometriosis. Um, now that is, I, and by the way, I, I had it, which, and I, I had the silent version, so to speak, which is why, um, I think it took so long for people to figure out what was happening, but you know, I've had friends when they hear about this or just random people that will meet me say, well, if I have endometriosis, do I get the surgery first and then do I freeze my eggs? Do I just freeze my eggs and not worry about it? Do I get surgery now just in case it'll help me for late? Like there's so many, like, I think the endo part really confuses people. 
So I'd love to get your perspective. And I know endo is so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, so much needs to be understood, but it would be helpful just to know, based on what we know today, what your thoughts might be. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You look at the person's age, you look at their AMH level, and you ask them about their priorities and goals are. So for some people, it's, I absolutely don't want to do IVF under any circumstances, then that's a different plan for them. If it's, yeah, I, I, I really want a lot of kids and, you know, I'm open to all options and ways to get there, then, you know, potentially, um, uh, considering excision surgery before or after an IVF cycle could be helpful. So I'll just give you some scenarios. So let's say you have a low AMH level. My concern if you go into surgery, especially if you have an endometrioma, is removing healthy ovarian tissue. So what I would usually recommend in a case like that is do an IVF cycle first and see what happens. And then if you're not successful, um, then consider excision surgery soon after from a surgeon that is highly trained in excision, and then try another IVF cycle soon after. So that's you know how I would approach things. If you're someone who's done a number of IVF cycles without success, then I would say, yeah, you know, even if you have an endometrioma and your ovarian reserve is low, it might be worthwhile taking the risk and doing excision surgery. Um, so I think it just kind of depends on your age, how many kids you want and, um, your hormone levels. And then that's how I decide what the best plan is with the, for that patient. And what about with egg freezing? Cause I've had friends who are just freezing eggs and are wondering if, if they haven't had the surgery, if the inflammation and whatnot that the endometriosis has associated with it. Could that impact the quality of the eggs and things like that? So do we know, and do you mm -hmm. have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. So for women who have endometriosis, the egg maturity will be lower and the physical characteristics in the eggs might actually, you know, be a good guide. Like when the embryologist is looking at the eggs, they write notes down. There's something called a gamete sheet and that can be shared with the patient. So I would share it with my patient and I would say, yeah, wow, you know, your eggs carry a lot of the, we see a lot of the things that we would see in eggs that, you know, may not be as good quality as we would expect for someone of your age. And so let's consider excision surgery and then do another egg retrieval. And it might make sense to also make embryos for you. Because I, I say it often that endometriosis robs women, women of healthy eggs. It causes our eggs to age faster and it causes more genetic abnormalities in the eggs because of the inflammation. Um, and so to protect yourself, you know, you could do a cycle of egg freezing before excision, a cycle of egg freezing after, and then consider a cycle of embryos. I think women just aren't freezing enough. When people say egg freezing doesn't work, I say, well, it's because you didn't freeze enough eggs at an age that was young enough to give you the best chance. So the word is out. Egg freezing works. It's just a matter of have you frozen enough eggs for yourself and did you do it at a young enough age? So, you know, people want the number. What is, I mean, how does one determine that number? And I know there's a lot of factors like oh, age yeah. um, and like how many kids you want and things like that. But I remember when all this started, the number was, you know, for every baby you want, you should freeze 10 eggs or so. I don't, I think that was the yeah. equation. So is it, is there still an equation for this? There is. I mean, the thing is though, you know, it's hard because I can get 10 eggs for someone and get one healthy embryo. I can get you know, three eggs from someone and get three healthy embryos. So it doesn't, those rules, what we've learned is like, they're not, you can't rely on them. So I don't want anyone who let's say has six eggs frozen, um, 
feel like she hasn't frozen enough if she's kind of tapped out and she just doesn't want to do it again because she might you just don't know until you actually you know try with them but let's just say for example if you're 37 years old i'd want you to have 30 eggs frozen for yourself if you want two kids so i i know that's a lot but i just you know i just know what's happening right now in today's world is women are just waiting until they're in their mid-40s to use those eggs and if you don't have enough eggs you just you know, you might wish you had frozen more and now's the perfect opportunity to do that. Now you brought up AMH. So I've been seeing folks say AMH doesn't matter. People are putting too much weight into it. Um, AMH is the thing you need to know. Nothing else matters. <laughs> I've heard it all. Yeah. So where are we with AMH? I think AMH is a very important test. It can help you do fertility planning for yourself. So for example, if your AMH is 0.3 and you're 32, you know you're going to go into menopause probably by the age of 40. And so you don't want to be that person that starts her family at 40. So I think that's important to know, right? And there's so many people that are showing up at 41 in my office saying I'm ready to start my family. And if their AMH is 0.05, they would have been pissed that you know no one told them about AMH. So I think AMH is still a useful tool. It doesn't tell me if your eggs are healthy or not. You know, I would say if you're, let's say, 32 with an AMH that's, let's say, 0.3, that tells me I could probably get you about three eggs, and you might need three or four IVF cycles if you want, let's say, three or four kids if you're planning on preserving your fertility for that purpose. So it, it helps me, again, with, like, fertility projections. So I can kind of give someone a plan based on their hormone levels. And it's not just the AMH, it's also the FSH, right. it's their family history, it's their follicle count. And I put that all together for them and come, I like to pre-plan their fertility plan and then they can you know, think about what feels right for them. So based on the people that are the, the patients that you're seeing and working with your colleagues, just based on that whole dynamic of trying to help a, a woman or a family decide the best path forward, what do you say are big misses or, or conversations you wish people would have more of around the dynamics of the hormone measurements and the diet and things like that? What are people necessar- not necessarily getting right that they should, which could potentially transform their path forward? Uh, big misses is relying on one set of hormone levels and saying that defines you, not realizing that an AMH could be wrong or an AMH can change over time. So you can have someone who has an AMH of three, they think they're perfect and they have awesome eggs. They repeat it a year later, it's 0.5. It turns out that that level of three was incorrect. So I think women who are in their 30s should probably repeat it within six months just to make sure that first level is accurate and also do an ultrasound. So I think that's a huge miss. People miss out on the opportunity to see a fertility doctor and actually in person get an ultrasound done. And so I think there's an opportunity there. Um, I think we didn't bring this up, but another huge miss around diet is uh, PCOS patients is really not um, really what we're not doing is um, treating PCOS from diagnosis. We're telling patients still, which is really frustrating for me, that it's nothing that you need to worry about until you're ready to have a family. And by the time the PCOS patient sees me, then we're playing catch up for like 15 years of, you know, no periods, high testosterone. And, and that's just a really hard place to be in. So those are the two big misses that I see. Okay. So my path was very different, right? I had an OBGYN who right away did testing and said, go to a fertility doctor. And, you know, you see these stats. I mean, now again, with awareness, it's so transformed um, where there's a lot of discussion around people not understanding male fertility is an important factor. And um, 
you know, again, like some of these underlying things that need to be sorted out. Do you, are you seeing that it's more balanced where it's not just after so many years or months of trying and someone finally goes to a fertility clinic that it's like this wake up call of, holy cow, why didn't I know this a long time ago? Do you think it's more balanced or are you still finding there's a gap between the OBGYN and the reproductive endocrinologist? Like what should people be prepared for? Yeah. So I would say um, people think that they need a referral to a fertility doctor from their OBGYN. You do not. Everyone can see a fertility doctor by just saying, I'm thinking about having a baby. I would say, get your fertility checked from a fertility doctor because they're going to be able to give you the most accurate advice and they know what tools in their toolbox can be applied to your case. Your OBGYN, they might have some bias and prejudice and might have some feelings that are um, not uh, science-based. Like I, I had a patient who was just told last week by her OBGYN that um, the longer she waits to use her frozen embryos, the lower the likelihood of success from those embryos. And I was like, there's no freezer burned. You can use those embryos indefinitely. Like, what is she talking about? And that's just scary to me that someone with a medical degree is giving such bad advice. And I'm just thinking about all the other things that she's probably saying to her patients. I have patients that are being told, oh, you're over 40, try for a year and then see a fertility doctor. And that's also like the worst thing that you can tell someone or tell someone who just had a miscarriage, you need to go on birth control pills for a year to get your body ready for another pregnancy. I hear those things. And so I feel like if women went right to the stores, like if you had a heart attack, you're not going to go to your family practice doctor when you're having your heart attack, you're going to go to the cardiologist. So every woman should feel like she has the right and ability to just self-refer and get the most accurate knowledge from the fertility doctor, not get, you know, a fertility workup from an OBGYN. God bless them. There are so many amazing ones out there. And then you come bring your results to me. And I'm like, they only did an FSH, they checked your HIV, and now I know your blood type. How is that a fertility workup? That still happens. <laughs> and, you know, I know that there are some great companies that are really working on helping women understand their hormones. And I know you mentioned some concerns around that. So for those who are simply relying on that, what's the boundary or the parameter in which that helps? And then people need to acknowledge there may be more support that's required. Like how should one view those and put perspective on it? Uh, those tests are highly accurate. They are often even more accurate than going to a Quest or a LabCorp. And I think you're referring to those blot paper tests where you use a lancet, prick mm -hmm. your finger, and then put blood on a, a piece of paper. That, some of them um, you can pee on too. So I guess that's also a very important thing to differentiate. So uh, the, the P tests don't look at AMH. I'm referring right. more to like an AMH level. So, okay. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, no, you're totally fine. So, um, so basically what I tell people when it comes to the AMH test that you're doing from home, that those companies are, they, they, they try and get people to repeat it. Uh, and, you know, I think there's even some subscriptions that you can get. So you're repeating it over time. And I feel like, you know, if you have a low level or a high level, repeat it within three or six months. Okay. What about the ones that are measuring the other hormones who are um, trying to help people get pregnant or stay pregnant, like even some of them are looking at the progesterone levels and they're more the, the pee on the strips type of tests. How mm -hmm. should women look at those? Cause I, I mean, I do like that they're 
helping women have much more awareness, but to the point we had earlier, it could create stress and paranoia, but then also how accurate is it? So again, what should we look at for those types of tests? I want people to stop peeing on things. I mean, I just want people to flush their urine. And I actually had this idea. I'm like, what if you put like a sensor in the toilet that would measure your pee's hormone levels? And I was like, oh my God, brilliant idea, Amy. And then someone already has a patent on it and it's coming out soon. Literally like a urine hormone sensor you just put in your toilet. So every time you pee, I mean, isn't that insane? Um, But until then, you know, I think my favorite test that I tell patients about is the prove complete. So easy test to do FSH estradiol at the start of your cycle, LH to, um, to predict your uh, window of opportunity for ovulation and then confirming ovulation with the PDG test, which is a progesterone metabolite in your urine. So that's an easy one to do. I mean, I I know there are people that pee every single day, many times a day and track their hormones, but I think that uh, there are other things that you can do with your time than spending so much time in the toilet. Right. I know the founder of Proof, Amy Beckley, she's amazing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, When I, I remember when um, she first came out and I called her right away when I was like, someone finally understands progesterone is important. I called her up and I was like, I saw this article. Can I please interview you? So she was actually one of my first interviewees and I have been following her along the way. I think they're now in Walgreens. Yeah, I did the same thing. As soon as I saw like a Google alert, I saw some article, some like Colorado paper and yes. I immediately called her. I was like, we're both named Amy. We need to be friends. So um, <laughs> we, we actually, along those lines, we just actually launched a, a, the first of its kind program um, through Prove, uh, powered by, it's power, you know, it's through Prove, but I'm the physician and it's to prescribe progesterone to women no matter where, no matter where they live in the United States. So doctors, oh, so patients don't fabulous. have to feel stupid or be told no by their doctors. Okay. Oh my God. I'm so happy to hear that because I am shocked at how hard it is to get a prescription for something that is clearly going to help people. So another question I have is about relationships and fertility treatments. I know that I, towards the end, it was really hard because it was just so many years and so much stress. And I called Dr. Braverman and he had shared there's a lot of that, but it was something no one ever talked about because for those who are open, it is, you know, which doctor did you go to? How many cycles did you do? How many embryos did you freeze? What was the grade? Like those are your conversations, but it never goes to how's your relationship and how are you surviving? And and because you are the clinician who sees all these dynamics, I'd love for you to share what really goes on behind the scenes and that kind of a dynamic, because I don't know if it's necessarily discussed as much. Um, I think we're discussing it more and more. And now there are support groups for men, which is also really helpful. And I, and I find if I can approach things with, it's both being professional and serious, but also with humor that hopefully that also rubs off on the, on, on the families that I'm seeing. And so that they can find humor in you know, a lot of the things, like I just made a joke today. Someone told me that, you know, they collected their sperm in a Ziploc bag. And he said he felt like he was, and then something like, you know, they felt like they were treated better at McDonald's than the clinic. And I made a joke and I said, well, at least at McDonald's, you got a lid for your cups. You know, I mean, it's like, you just got to find the humor and stuff and just keep things as light as possible and just always communicate and realize that women take things differently than men, but it doesn't mean that men 
don't have all the feelings and don't feel shame and don't feel sad because they certainly do. We have a lot of guys here that cry just like women cry. And so I recommend one-on-one therapy, each have a therapist, uh, couples therapy, group therapy, you know, and then finding another couple that can really like, you know, that you can relate with, but not compete with as far as like what your numbers are. So part of why I had actually started this podcast, I was doing some research and originally I was actually going to build a startup for fertility and it was really going to be about around education, like what do you ask your doctor and then having clinicians or nurse practitioners or whatnot, just coaching people through. And this is obviously well before all of these wonderful resources, but it was a huge gap of like, why are we learning this along the way? Then I transformed to making my podcast about all women's health because of a Reddit post. And the Reddit post was, I am 42 and I have two embryos left. I constantly have miscarriages. Should I use one or two embryos? And it just, I'm like, she is asking the wrong question. And again, I'm not a doctor, so maybe I should or shouldn't have said this, but my instinct was, my dear, (laughs) that is not the right question. Your question should be, why are you having miscarriages? Understand what's going on with your body, because these are the youngest embryos you are ever, ever, ever going to have. So the question is not one or two. The question is, when and if. (laughs) And it just hit me, like, there's this whole root cause that I feel like gets missed. And I don't know if it's the women who we as women who just want that, that baby and we just rush to get the IVF. Is it clinicians who may not be doing the due diligence? Is it a mix of a lot of things? And and this is not a point fingers things, but I think it's complex is is the point I'm trying to make. And so that's why I started doing this um, podcast on all women's health topics. Cause it's like, we have to understand what's going on with us before we start doing all these things of more medications and more IVFs and anything else that we need to be healthy. So I guess I would love your perspective on the, your, I guess, words of wisdom to people going through this and that whole understanding the root cause. Cause I'd I'd hate for people, especially in this quick fix society to view this as I'm going to freeze eggs and then get an IVF, or I'm going to do an IVF and they skip all the other stuff. So what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, that's why I created all these cheesy mnemonics. I mean, that's where the tushy method, balls method. And then I have an angel method. I have um, embryo diamonds. So, you know, angel method is my workup for women who may have had a miscarriage or a family history of miscarriages. These are tests that you do for someone who has recurrent pregnancy loss, but I like to prevent recurrent pregnancy loss. So I call it a prevent recurrent pregnancy loss workup. So you're right. Anytime I have embryos, I'm always thinking um, if this doesn't work or she miscarries, what testing would I do? What would I do differently? And then I'm going to present that to her and say, would you like to do this first? And I've had patients that say, Amy, no, I'm fine. Like I will accept. I don't want to do more tests. I'm kind of done. And I have other patients that are like, heck yeah, I'm so glad you're thinking like this. I'd like to do these tests first because I would hate to transfer the last two embryos a woman has. And then have her say, well, what should we do from here? And I give her the list. And then she's like, but I don't have any embryos left. Like, why would you offer that to me? Like, why would you offer to me a a surrogate knowing I've done like six IVF cycles and now I have no embryos left? 
like now I, I have to, you know, do something that I was hoping I didn't need to do, although it's a good option for a lot of people and that's using an egg donor, but most people would choose their own DNA if given the option. So I'm totally right. with you. You know, it's about asking the questions. And then I always tell people, ask this very important question. What would you do for me if this transfer didn't work? What other treatments, what other tests would you offer me? I'm just curious. And then you can say, well, actually, thank you so much for bringing that up. I'd like to do those now. I'm hearing this theme from you, which is it's actually fairly simple. There's actually a process to all of this and we shouldn't um, overcomplicate the the things that don't need to be, such as the hormone measurements. If you could just pee in a toilet and get it measured, done. So we got that taken care of. What else do you hope to see change when it comes to this world of family creation, especially as we are often choosing to have children later. And notice I'm not saying IVF and egg freezing because it could be it could be broader than that. And I don't want people right. to think it's a straight shot to that. But what yeah. are the innovations you hope to be able to see? I mean, this is not so much an innovation, but I would hope to see that it's free and cost something that everyone could afford and done for everyone who wants a chance, even by the age of 25. So that would be a, an amazing dream of mine. Um, the other innovation I'd love to see is a way for women to be able to preserve their fertility without freezing their eggs. So a new breakthrough mm-hmm. drug or, you know, there's in vitro gametogenesis, there's rapamycin. So there are a lot of things that could be available to us in the future. But unfortunately, you know, the way I think about it is if Roe v. Wade got overturned, um, like who thought, who would have thought that could have happened? Um, right. The likelihood that we as women are going to have some amazing breakthrough available to us that would be cost effective for women to not have to freeze their eggs. I don't see that happening with how politically things are going right now. So that's, that's my, that's what makes me sad is that we could have so many things that we could be doing to prevent miscarriage, better genetic testing for women, you know, stem cell research, uh, maybe the use of CRISPR-Cas9. So these are all things that I think could help us, but I don't think I'm going to see them in my lifetime, unfortunately. I know other people say, Amy, there's still a chance. Maybe in five years, you can turn a skin cell into an egg cell. I'm like, I love how you're thinking, but I don't think that's that's true. But I would love for that to be a reality. Do you feel that people are looking too much at how to optimize... IVF, or maybe a a better way to frame this is, do you feel like some of the research is directed and maybe not the best place to solve for the longer term issue? And so now I'll say what I was saying in the beginning, which is some have said to me, and I actually sometimes wonder this as well, is because the money can be made in fertility treatments, a lot of the money is spent on making those better rather than fully innovating in the space. Like I would love to see more women's health research and understanding why our bodies are the way they are so we can get better. And like, for example, have treatments that are better than they are for endo, have people diagnosed earlier for PCOS and all that. But, you know, I'm just so curious how you feel about where the effort truly is given where the money is to be made. I mean, I don't see that there is much effort in ways to improve things um, for us. I mean, I don't really see, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a very optimistic person, but you know, when I look at what changes we've made in the last 15 years, 
there really haven't been any huge breakthroughs. I mean, we might be a little better at genetic testing, but we still can't see the entire genome of an embryo. You can still miss things and have babies with serious diseases, even though they did genetic screening. Um, you know, my, my patients are still making, uh, you know, embryos that aren't, or that don't grow really well, and we don't know why. People are still having miscarriages of euploid embryos. We still don't know why. As far as like why this isn't, I mean, it's just incredibly expensive, and there's so much bureaucracy related to this kind of research. So, I mean, I think a lot of times this research is being done, you know, in animal models and then also in other countries. But I hope that some of these, and if you want to talk a little bit more about some of the innovations that I think are super exciting, you know, I, I think a lot of these clinical trials are being done in other countries, and hopefully we'll see that, see the, you know, that technology then come here down the road. Real quick, grading of the embryos. Um, first of all, grading matters. Um, I know there are some doctors that say all your embryos, doesn't matter the grades, you have a 50% chance. That's totally incorrect. So that's why I came up embryo diamonds. So that each letter represents something and everyone needs to know about each thing about their embryos. So people should know which embryos are normal. Um, they should know what day the embryos were frozen on. Were they day three, day two, day five, day six, day seven, the implantation rate, um, which one's mosaic. They should get the official reports and make sure that mosaicism was actually screened for or unmasked, or if they were lied to and their embryos um, were actually mosaic and they were told that they were abnormal, you know, you get into situations where patients are discarding potentially healthy embryos. So for me, quality absolutely 100% matters and people are not getting um, their reports back. People are going through several IVF cycles and never see a single embryology report. And when they ask the question, sometimes they're heartbroken to find out that they were given false hope, that embryos were frozen, that actually don't have a chance for pregnancy. And unfortunately, I still see that even today, where patients are told that they have you know, two beautiful embryos. And when they get the quality back, they realize that the likelihood of them working is less than 5% because of the quality and how they were frozen. So I, I want people to you know, make sure that after an IVF cycle, you do a post-IVF consult with the fertility doctor immediately, not three months or six months later. And unfortunately, I see that happening where people are scheduled like three months out. And it's like mind-blowing. Like it's baffling. It's like, how does that happen? Like how can people go through such a big procedure and then not regroup right away when everything is top of mind? Um, so I think that's an important thing for people to do is ask, what's the quality of each embryo? What embryo was it frozen? What's the implantation per rate per embryo? And then these are my goals as far as how many kids do I want? How many more embryos do you think I need? How many more cycles should I do? I think you need to have those conversations up front, not after, you know, um, you deliver your first baby and then find out that the next two embryos actually had no chance. And now you're 43 years old. You know what I mean? Like those are the experiences I don't want people to have. Right. Any, any last words that, that you would like to share? Um, I mean, I think the most important thing that I want people to do is find a way to make their bodies feel alive every day. And I want to use the word vibrate, like really feel joy and not just like a little bit, like, you know, connect with someone you love, like do something to make yourself feel alive each and every day. Because this this process of being a fertility patient can be soul sucking, soul crushing. It can make you feel like a shell of who you once were. And I want you to take the trips, go to the parties, drink that glass of wine if that's what you want to do and choose to do. And don't feel shame about it. 
So I think that's like something that I've been kind of sharing more recently with people. And I hope people will hear that and listen to that song, blast that music, go on that walk, you know, hug your partner, have sex again, <laughs> and not at the time when you're ovulating. Thank you for your passion and, and turning it into even more than treating your patients and being able to scale your your wisdom so that others can access it as well. Um, Cause I know you can't treat every single human being on the planet. So <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying though. Well, how would you like people to, to stay in touch? And I'll put everything in the show notes too. So no one has to memorize it, but um, how would you like people to stay in touch? You know, anywhere that you put an egg whisper, Google, you'll find me. I'm pretty easy to find. So you can find my website, dramy.org. Um, you can go to iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, put in the Egg Whisper, Egg Whisper show, YouTube as well. So um, I'm pretty easy to find on Instagram, for example. Uh, but the best way to connect with me, if you want me to hear your story and share my expert opinion would be through the schedule a consult um, tab on my website. And then for people who don't quite feel like they want to be a patient, but want to get advice, that's a little bit more personalized. So I would take one of my courses. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you making time. This was great. Thank you, Georgie. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you so much. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com. Drop us a message on social media or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.